This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Monkey Wrench Investigation. Karen 12s. SF films go from the 80s to the 90s. And Viking Raids of the 980s. you doing? I'm getting into character to play the new Plain Gia 5e campaign setting. It's about dinosaurs! Well, technically it's a prehistoric fantasy campaign setting, so not just about dinosaurs, but dinosaurs! I don't think you actually play as a dinosaur, but there are a ton of new kinships, subclasses, monsters, factions. I guess it is possible. I'll just check through this massive 380-page Plain Gia setting book and see. Well, okay... Oh, wow, you totally can play as a dinosaur. Playing Gia is a prehistoric fantasy setting for 5e. It's a place of utter wildness where survival is the only law and must be carved from the world by a force of might and magic. Play a Saurian with ancestral memories. Pick from a Leatherwing, Hammertail, Sharpfang, or Webfoot. Rawr! Indeed, rawr! Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe in Plain Gia for 5e. Nothing is as you expect in Plain Gia. Elves are shimmering dreamwalkers. Dwarves are half stone. Humans are beast tamers. Halflings are silent stalkers. Gnomes are filthy scavengers. And dragonborn are just a heartbeat away from their draconic ancestors. The campaign setting book, as well as accessories like the GM screen, adventure soundtrack, and deluxe boxed edition, are all available now from Atlas Games. For more, use your tiny flailing arms to type in atlas-games.com slash Plain Gia. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive, and two fingers of bourbon welcome us once more into the gaming hut, where beloved Patreon backer Ryan McClelland points out that in the Maltese Falcon, Spade says something about his investigative style being throwing a monkey wrench into the works to see what reacts. How do you fit this style of, quote, investigative play into Gumshoe? Uh, Robin, is it just a matter of using a bullshit detector while punching a guy? What's, what's, what else is going on? Well, I, I think that, first of all, this is an interesting case of Hammett, as the term goes, uh, hanging a lantern on something about his plotting, which is that it's not actually traditional mystery plotting it's he's as the inventor of the hard-boiled it's more he uh, is writing uh, dark crime adventure stories and in that context it's perfectly fair to just have the character going around causing trouble and see what happens right and mm-hmm. bond does the same thing later and ian fleming where he just shows up and see who sends a henchman to attack him and right. see who captures him and monologues at him. And on the written page in novel form, I am sometimes irked by that style of, shall we say, plotting <laughs> because it can be lazy. And particularly sometimes there are, the writer takes it really far and just has people showing up constantly to throw the plot at a checked out or unwilling protagonist. That's a problem. But in the role-playing context, it's a problem And the difficulty there is actually getting 
the players to be reckless enough to create the sort of interesting trouble that leads to more information. Because you will find when you play a little bit of gumshoe and the players have an option between A, finding and reading a document, B, scouting out a physical location, and C, going to talk to anyone. (laughs) They prefer to do those things in that order because, you know, they're afraid of getting stick from even even from the little lady who runs the inn, let alone, you know, Mickey Cohen or the mob boss or whoever it is. And so it takes a sort of a leap to, if you're running a sort of a hard-boiled thing where that is the tradition or, you know, a modern hard-boiled or, you know, other people use that plot structure, I think the challenge It's to signal to the players when their characters are expected to go in like a bull in a china shop and get conked on the head and, you know, get information that way. Because players, you know, even if they're not initially versed in D&D, which encourages very cautious play, they played with other people who feel that way and they're protective of their characters. So how to let players know that if they take risks that they'll be rewarded for doing interesting things, I think is the key issue here, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, part of it is, of course, just GM signaling and creating a culture of play where being beaten up isn't the end of the world. Part of it, I think, is in the job of the rule set and the adventures, the sample adventures to say, this is what happens. This is how you do it. It might be that if you're doing a straight up Hammett Noir or Jack Reacher or Travis McGee or any of the other successors of um, Sam Spade, the Continental Op, the Thin Man, especially Nick and Nora Charles, not the Thin Man, Thin Man's the bad guy, that you need to provide a mechanic that says, you know, here is the rule in a fight. If anyone is knocked out, that will give you a core clue. And you just have to write the scenarios that way. It can be you. It can be the bad guy. It can be whatever. You can, you know, make fighting an investigative ability in some sense, or fisticuffs at least, or make, you know, being clonked on the head, you know, more even than the, if you're taken prisoner, you will get a clue when you escape. It becomes, if you are ever, even a guy holds a gun on you, they are uh, required to monologue or, or share something that moves you along the path. And it might be, you know, re- you, you might have to just sort of formalize it and say, this is, you know, what happens and, and feed it out in a number of sample adventures until you get players who are confident that they, you know, can get into a scrap and can get information, uh, can go toe to toe, not just with the lady that runs the bookstore or the uh, secretary down at the uh, big real estate firm, but with, you know, the, the, the gunsole who's been sent around to muscle you or with um, uh, the cops or with whoever, right? Right. You might even create an investigative ability, an interpersonal ability called needling, where you get information by needling thin-skinned people until they inadvertently blurt out the information uh, you need. Or you could just call it hard-boiled. Right. And that could give you a sense of, you know, what in this situation will ye- yield me information if I push on it, right? And now, the answer, in fact, is actually usually pretty obvious, right? The person mm-hmm. you least want to push on if you're a cautious player. But just by creating that ability and putting it on the character sheet, you're telling the player, and perhaps, you know, you could try and inveigle things so that your most risk-forward player is the one who has it on their sheet. Mm-hmm. It's just a way of saying, well, you could get information by going and, you know, kind of being a jerk and right. leaning on people. And yeah. if they say, well who would I get the most information from with my hard-boiled skill? And of course you say, 
the mob boss, <laughs> the head of the casino, right? The, it's oh yeah, of course. You know, it's it's not the little old lady right. uh, yeah. who runs the knitting store, um, unless you know she's secretly a bootlegger, which is also entirely possible. But so that essentially there, right on the character sheet, is a genre signal and a permission structure to make the story happen by going out and uh, you know elbowing it uh, in the ribs. Mm-hmm. The human ability in Fall of Delta Green is a little bit like that, but it's more general than just. And intimidation, which is the other way you might do this with the pre-existing skill set, is a little too specific. So there is a sort of a a needling or a hard-boiled, as you say, might be, you know, necessary. At the very least, you'd want to make that clear in play that, you know, you can combine, um, maybe this is how you do it, you can combine intimidation or bullshit detector or whatever with fighting, and if you use that, you get a clue and you refresh and you can spend that point to give you a plus one to your fist or whatever. And that, you know, gives you a, a mechanical incentive to do it more often. Right. And if you don't want to add a new ability, you can make this part of the remit of Streetwise, mm-hmm. uh, which in almost every gumshoe game in which this plot structure would fit has Streetwise or an, an equivalent. Mm-hmm. And so you can just say to the player, among the many other things, you sense where you can get information by putting yourself in medium danger. Mm-hmm. However, since Streetwise is a long-standing ability that people expect to use in a different way, I'm not sure if that would have as powerful a, a genre uh, signal as a, a new ability specifically for hard-boiled and post-hard-boiled mysteries. Or at the very least, a little rule call-out in the combat section that says, getting clues by punching or being punched. Yes. I think I think probably being punched is is much more in genre, right? Yeah, I mean they both happen, right? I mean Spade both is beaten up by thugs and given clues, or muscled by the cops and given clues. That happens a lot, or you know bullying, you know Joel Cairo or whoever right. and, and getting clues. That but I think way. players have that part down already. Yeah, you think? All right. Yeah. But so, the thing where it's a risk for you to use uh, force, or rather to go into it, because part of that is that we have so much uh, sneaking in games. And once people sneak, they don't want to be caught. No. And Marlowe and Bond uh, get all their best clues from being caught, yeah. uh, which brings us, I guess, to the other longstanding thing of how much players hate being even just held up, let alone, you know, they hate it when people get the drop on them, let alone being actually captured. Uh, but that's another longstanding uh, gaming issue and a different topic. And when we slide into a different topic, it's time for us to slide out of the gaming hut and into whatever lies on the other side of this commercial. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need 
to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. Hello, and welcome again to Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And today I, Ken, am at Chupacabra Con in scenic San Marcos, Texas, talking to Karen Twelves, writer, editor, and alpha gamer, I guess is probably <laughs> how you put it. And you are, I think, most famous, best known as the author of Improv for Gaming. Yeah. Is that right? Improv for Gamers. Improv for Gamers. Always got the title right, kids. <laughs> Don't be like Ken, like what Ken tells you to be like. <laughs> so, Improv for Gamers, that came out in, like, 2018? It did, yeah, the first edition, and then we made a second edition that just came out last year in, in 2022. Fantastic. And I guess to start with, what's your background in gaming? Did you begin as improv and get dragged into it by bad companions? Did you begin as <laughs> a gamer and discover that improv was a more fun what what's your path the the story i think is is very similar first of all i got into gaming first in high school when a friend of mine said do you want to play dungeons and dragons and i said sure mm -hmm. uh and then it's all ben's fault from there on out that's fair um so ben if you're listening this is all your fault um and you know play it all through high school college and then after college i was living in oakland and some friends of mine had just kind of moved out and I was honestly kind of feeling kind of sad, a little isolated. And a friend of mine said, do you want to take this improv class? And I said, sure. So Chris, it's all Chris's fault now for that. Because once I started doing that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. And I had just discovered Endgame, which was our favorite friendly local gaming store in right. Brooklyn since the, closed. One of so the greatest sad. gaming stores ever to sell a die to anyone. Yeah. So I was really um, like discovering both of those things at the same time, kind of like getting into much more narrative games that I had not ever played before and learning about improv and just seeing the overlaps in like the skills of like, oh my gosh, improv is going to make me so much of a better gamer right? Because I'm learning how to collaborate. I'm learning how to listen. I'm learning how to just be a little more like free with my creativity and not like worry so much about is my idea the coolest? Is my character the most tragic, you know, in its backstory? So I was very excited about that. And as I got more into improv and, you know, was still continuing to play a lot of games, started thinking about trying to make a workshop for gamers so that we could just pick the useful things for that. Because there's a lot that you're doing in improv classes with the idea that you will get up on stage and perform. Right. But there's so much gold there that's so useful to just pick up and port over into gaming. So that's kind of where the workshop started. And we started teaching that in like 2012, All I right. want to say. Yeah. At Endgame was our first workshop. They hosted us, and there was, like, magic players on the other side mm -hmm. of, of their upstairs, and we were screaming and being, you know, ridiculous. loud improvisers, yeah. ridiculous, yeah. and annoying them. And then they kept asking us back. And it just kind of, yeah, just went from there, and eventually I decided to just put the book together as a collection of, like, here are my favorite improv exercises that I bring to my workshops. Here's how you can run them with your friends so you don't need me actually and you don't need to pay a lot to go to a convention right because they can be you know they can be expensive there's so much fun mm -hmm. but uh not everybody can go to conventions and That's so true. and also 
two hours of improv when I first started, it was like a four hour session. It was an intense workshop, which was way too much. And even two hours can be a little exhausting. Right. So it was another way for people to just like pick and choose, do something short, do one game before your session with your friends, do more if you feel like doing it. But now you can just like do improv in your living room and, you know, discover all the fun stuff yourself. So you were a gamer, then you were an improv person. Mm -hmm. What was there a single moment that it clicked or was it just walking in and being told yes and and you're like, oh, also with bugbears? Yeah, kind of. Like as soon as I started, I was like, oh, this is the same. Right. This is the same. But, you know, I've already been doing improv. So I teach improv for improvisers, for performers. I teach Mm -hmm. improv for gamers. And I love teaching gamers who have not done improv before, who have not thought they've done improv before, open up so quickly it's so fun to watch because i think the tr- like the transformation of like getting it is so much faster right than teaching somebody who's going into it just like wanting to perform and get into comedy you you have to kind of come from a different approach whereas gamers are already we're so primed mm-hmm. to be performers already and right. everyone's already improvising they don't think that they are but that's exactly what they're doing. So I'm just kind of picking and, and being like, this is something that you're already doing. We're going to play a fun little theater game just to practice and like highlight that one skill. And it's it's so much fun to watch. And I think that gamers who are like just getting to improv are just some of the most creative people. So it's like as a facilitator, it's it's really a joy. Yeah, Greg Stafford famously defined role-playing as improvisational radio theater. And I think he did that in the 70s. I mean, that's a really good way of putting it. I I find I always struggle with, you know, trying to explain gaming to somebody who doesn't know it. And you're like, it's collaborative storytelling. And they're like, I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. You're like, it's Dungeons and Dragons. Have you seen Stranger Things? Mm -hmm. It's like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, except different. (laughs) But different. Every important respect. Yeah. Uh, So was there a, uh, one of the story games, one of the narrative games that sort of rekindled your interest? Were you, are you, do you still play on two tracks? Do you still have your old school 12 siders and graph paper off in a corner? Or are you now a fully embodied story game super fan? I, I like going back and forth because I, I think if you get, you know, too entrenched in one style, you're limiting yourself to lots of different types of storytelling. So I started with Advanced Dungeons and Dragons in high school. College, obviously, because I went to a liberal arts school, it was a lot of vampire and werewolf and moody stuff. Then I discovered adventure and aberrant and pulp action. And Mm -hmm. then when I, and like one of the first games that I played at Endgame was Spirit of the Century. Right. And that blew my mind. So that's, that's the channel. That's very interesting because you don't really think first of all, unfairly, of pulp players as Mm -hmm. having a lot in common with the sort of story game movement. Yeah. And you absolutely don't think of the people who took the least dramatizing part of White Wolf. Yeah. And that's that's a very interesting channel. Yeah. You found your way into Fate, and then I assume from Fate to the... From Fate, I just was playing... Tons of weird stuff, obviously super into fiasco. Right, yeah. And and so and was really exploring a lot of other games that um I was never part of like the the Forge, but I think that there are a lot of games that came out of that that I was playing at the time. Right. 
And so that's kind of my touchstone to narrative gaming. Now, have you ever been involved with or uh, touched upon? This is an entire tangent. The audience can mm-hmm. just figure out something else to do with their time. Have you <laughs> this ever, is for us. Yes, this is just for us. Have you ever been involved with or connected to the Jeep form movement? You know, I know the name, but I wouldn't say that I'm like involved in it. Right. But definitely there was a time where that was what I was looking for when people were describing LARPs. Yeah. You know, when I was going to cons and trying to find the most, the most indie LARP Right. You know, yeah. yeah find find the one that's going to that. make me cry. Let's mm-hmm. do it. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I had the I had the very good fortune of being at Ropacon with Tobias, the sort of you know guru of Jeep form, mm-hmm. and that really switched a switch in my brain, yeah. my very old school tradie brain, to all the other stuff you can do, not just you know with the rules and the design, which I was you know pretty much familiar with from the various uh, story games and, and mm-hmm. post Forge games, but the way that that really drove play in a different direction. Yeah. And do you find that there are games now that you would sort of lean on if people were interested in that kind of experimental play? Or is that a technique that you can, say, pick up and put into just the oldest of old school Call of Cthulhu or Warhammer type game? What, for you, is it... To what, to what extent does system matter, I guess, is the question I'm sort of getting at. I don't think system matters, because I think the lessons that you're taking from improv are just how to be a good collaborator, and you you should be doing that no matter what you're playing right. in different ways. Definitely those types of, of games that are encouraging your players to fail, you're going to take that improv risk-taking mindset of like, yeah, I'm going to do something really silly, but that's going to be really good for the story. If you are playing a more strategic, I want to keep my character alive and get them to level 20 game, and why wouldn't you? They're super fun. Right. You're going to be taking the more like, I want to hype up my fellow players. I want to make them look good, you know? So now you're working on just like support, you know, in the narrative. Right. And also like not trying to compete when you're working together. So you kind of might take those collaborative rules from improv a little bit more mm-hmm. of the like, make your partner look good of like, we're all in this together. We're all a team. We're going to beat the crap out of this Lich King. Right. Now, do you have a, um, like a sort of a go-to, you know, works every time technique that takes about three minutes to explain and would work for pretty much anybody. A technique for, to teach improv? Or to, a single improv technique to take from this podcast and pour it right into their next game session and scare the hell out of their GM who doesn't know that they just heard you. Oh my gosh. I I kind of like the, the idea of breaking down the yes and rule to thinking about... Um, the responsibility really goes both ways. And so here's my little rant about yes and, is I think if you just start and stop there, it, it creates a giant loophole for bad actors. They're like, yeah. oh, if yes and means you have to do whatever I say, that's awful. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, you know, that's not fun. And we do like so much work to like have a fun collaborative space. And that's just doing the whole thing in poor faith. Whereas a yes and mindset is, I'm super excited to hear your idea. I can't wait to figure out how to make it work. I also trust that you're going to give me an idea that is going to be fun to say yes to. So there's like a two-way trust of one, like 
if you're giving me an offer, you're trusting that I'm going to be excited about it. I'm not going to swat it down. I'm not going to judge it. I'm not going to make fun of you for it or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm trusting that you're giving me an idea that buys into what we're already doing. You know, that's going to be fun. That's like in the same level of what we're doing. You're not bringing something in that's going to like make my character look bad or make me as a player not enjoy the game. You know, yeah. so like we really need to both be trusting each other. And I think that's that's such an important takeaway in improv is that you're you're both supporting the other person and you want to let them know that you have their back. So if you jump in with just like a lot of enthusiasm and you're like, give me your idea and you also like give other people good ideas. And if they don't like that idea, then that's fine, too. You can brainstorm and collaborate and work together to find something as opposed to everyone feeling like they have to separately be awesome. Yeah, they don't have to stovepipe their coolness. Yeah. Is there a way to sort of encourage that mutuality that you find that works in play at the table, either with a new game group or maybe you know, one new person is joined and you have to sort of welcome them in something like that where, because obviously that sort of aggrandizing, I'm here to either annoy the GM or ruin the table for other people to play. It happens all the time. And the the short answer is kick them back out of the game. Yeah. But is there a way to, (laughs) if you find, you know, someone who can be taught, is Mm -hmm. there a way to move that down the pike a little bit faster? Do you have you found? I think if you're a GM, a way to get people to be more collaborative is, is yeah, is like kind of lead them down that path and start asking lots of questions about other people of, you know, if, if your character just rolls something and you did really, really well, turn to someone else and be like, what does that look like? Tell me how awesome they look. Right. And then you get another player making another player look good. You know, you ask each other questions so that they feed into the story and now everyone has a lot of buy-in and they're also affecting the story that's not just about their character. To me, that's that's always, a. I mean, as the GM, it's both easier and harder to do this, mm-hmm. but... To me, that's always been sort of a core to this kind of play is before I let a yes and your idea for you, mm-hmm. let's hear your idea for another player. Yeah. And I'll probably yes and that because mm-hmm. you're going to be incentivized to make your group's position better, mm-hmm. but via the other player looking good. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that maybe that's like a shorthand as a GM is, you know, there is the everyone contributes something about the scenario. You know, yeah. tell me a... Tell me a thing that's in the room you could use to hit that guy, whatever it is, mm-hmm. that sort of collaborative scene building. But in terms of the interplay that you're talking about, is there, as was just formally saying, mm-hmm. you can only yes and somebody else's idea? Or is there a another sort of an, an approach towards that? I don't know. That's a tough question. I think I think there's a lot of different different ways to you know, encourage good gameplay. I go in with what I often call aggressive optimism. Right. Yeah. And that's also how I facilitate, how I coach is when people are nervous. I just say, you can do this. I absolutely believe in you. And I don't let them back down. I'm like, no, you can absolutely get up there. And then, and then they do it and like everybody cheers. So how dare I, you let my idea of you down? <laughs> kind of. Right. But just, I just, I don't let them kind of get off the hook or like, I'm just going to always be really excited and happy and like keep this, like we can't get off these rails now we're here. Right. Like you showed up to do, to do some improv. So now we're all going to be super silly together and you can't get out of it. And if people showed up for improv, that's great. Yeah. It's just that some people show up to a game to 
watch or to you know tactically figure things out so some of it is just reading the room like good old old school gming has always exactly best practices you want buy-in and you want everybody to be on the same page playing the same game whatever that game is right you know when you're playing a horror game you want to let people know hey this is a horror game one these types of things are going to come up let's make sure we're all cool with what level of gore what Mm -hmm. level of of body horror whatever two let's make sure that we keep the tone serious so if someone gets the giggles we're gonna take a breather you know and like that's a good way to get everyone on board with like tone yeah i love that you brought up horror because that's been my argument since forever the reason horror is both harder and better than other games is you have to get that buy-in ahead of time. It's tricky because it's so easy to get goofy when you get nervous and you get scared. You start making light of things. You start laughing to ease the tension. So it's it's natural to start making jokes. Right. And is horror specifically covered in improv for gamers, one hopes? I try not to push anybody towards any type of game. Right. I really tried when I was writing it to be very careful to not say that there is one type of game that's better than another. You just show how these types of skills can be used in any so, any the, so the techniques in the books are, are universal uh, yeah, application. Yeah, they're, they're system intent. agnostic. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, on that ecumenical note, thank you so much, Karen, for being on the show. Thank it's you. It's been hugely fun to talk to you. And Improv for Gamers, everybody. New edition. Better yeah. improv than those old editions. More improv. More improv. The best kind of improv. And uh, thanks again for coming by. Thank you. The Best of Asphagel is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast from monkey-wrenching investigators by joining such stalwart Patreon backers as... Ross Ireland. Stephen Hammond. Todd W. Olson. Alexander Arabella. And Derek Heimforth. Once more, we stride up the increasingly lurid carpet. It's by bright magenta now. Uh, we pass the lasers and the fog machines from the midnight uh, movie because we're in that kind of cineplex. Because what other kind of cineplex would one settle down at the center seats of the center aisle of the cinema hut to watch a science fiction cinema essentials series? But this kind, and this kind is now heading out of the 80s. We bid fond farewell to that pinnacle decade with a uh, film that I think bids 
fond farewell to that pinnacle decade. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, directed by Stephen Herrick, 1989, released as an amiable stoner comedy, but it became, I think, a cultural sensation and also is a absolute success as a comedy, but also as a time travel movie. As uh, you know, it introduced a lot of elements to the time travel genre, which you would not have thought you know, needed to wait until a stoner comedy from 1989, the, you know, pre thinking to do a thing, the, you know, trash can, trash can, trash can that I think is original of that film. I don't think it had even appeared. Maybe it was in literary SF somewhere, but it certainly wasn't as sort of assumed in the way that good uh, science fiction cinema assumes the ray, the ray guns and the robots. This just assumes time travel. And because it's in the endearing and appealing heads of Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, the titular Ted and Bill, there's almost no flaws to this film. It's a tiny little perfect diamond gem. The soundtrack, it slaps. It's great fun. It's great fun under any set of chemical enhancement that you care to name, <laughs> which means it succeeded on its actual intended purpose. And George Carlin, of course, anchors the film as the wise patron, the mentor voice from the future, who uh, tells Bill and Ted that the thing that will actually save the world is goofy teens and music, not any higher social agenda. And they derive a moral philosophy in the course of the film. It's wonderful. It, it's just... I can't say enough good things about it. Robin, why don't you say some good things about it? Right. I'm glad you have already succeeded in articulating why we counted this one as essential when we hummed and hawed over Back to the Future and didn't quite push it over the line, which is all the things you just said. Uh, so it's a tiny little miracle of a film in that it is not a hilarious joke-filled comedy. It, it used to use the word amiable, and I think the thing that makes it a sort of core piece of pop culture and had uh, not only a immediate sequel but a a recent you know old ted and bill get together and and uh, revisit the uh, uh premise sequel is just the sort of spirit of kindliness and and you know how appealing these characters they are and how positive their spirit is and it's a hangout film as well as being all those other things and you know the comic characters are never mean unlike a lot of 80s comedy it's not about putting down the snobs or uh, secretly being a snob and putting down the outsiders that's even worse this is just two young guys who are delighted with life and it never looks down on them and that as much as all the things that make it a, a actually an innovative time travel movie are what i think elevates it to classic status and it's just sort of a quick silver tone that is somehow sustained throughout that is quite surprising the next we're gonna uh it's not an essential it's a mentionable the reason it's a mentionable in my opinion is that the third act doesn't quite work mm -hmm. but this is the abyss by james cameron from 1989 and uh this is his underwater his his love of uh, aquatic exploration is coming into his filmmaking uh this is about ed harris and mary elizabeth mastrantonio going down to the strangest part of the universe which of course is deep undersea and where the uh cool cgi water elemental aliens are discovered and it is i think unfortunately more about its innovative use of cgi than a film that fully works is why we have to mention this film. Yeah, everything you say is true. It really swings for the fences as an intellectual science fictional film, 
What if first contact underwater is a great concept that's still far from exhausted, even in print science fiction and in film. It was, I think this was almost the first time it had ever been done. Cameron tries a lot of very innovative water filming techniques, both underwater and on the surface of the water. So it, it looks great. It's, it's a, another beautiful film from him. Ed Harris is always terrific, but you're absolutely right. This is the 2001 problem for people who are not Kubrick. Once you meet the aliens, everything sort of has to happen somehow. And it's very hard, of course, to write a story about a completely unprecedented pattern breaking thing. And Cameron gives it the old college try, but I, I really think it does fall apart at the moment of first contact or maybe a tiny bit after that. It has to become about the dangers of uh, underwater exploration. Right. And so it winds up having the, uh, you know, woman in the moon issue as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's got, it, I mean, it, it, it is far from a perfect film, but it is absolutely a watchable. And I think it does. I mean, it certainly influences uh, Cameron a great deal to keep thinking about underwater stuff, but I feel like it also, everybody else looks at the CGI and goes, Hey, that's the thing. That that's what we pursue. want. And, and a blob metal alien. Boom. There we go. Next, we come to the handmaid's tale directed by Volker Schlondorf from 1990s, where we've finally left the eighties. And uh, this and we're is immediately depressed and sad. <laughs> immediately depressed. Uh, well, this is like Fahrenheit 451. This is an adaptation of a serious work of uh, social science fiction by a European director, and in my opinion, handling it within the confines of the motion picture time frame is probably much better treatment of that than stretching out to five seasons of television. Uh, this features Natasha Richardson as the woman who is oppressed by the near future scary theocracy as represented by Faye Dunaway and Robert Duvall. It's extremely well handled for Schlondorf, who did not do a lot of English language films, and the performances are quite strong, and it's just an extremely solidly made film that focuses on the drama and on the social change created in this dread near future. Yeah, well, if you're looking for a European director, Robin, to direct an acclaimed science fiction masterpiece, who better than Paul Verhoeven to direct Total Recall based somewhat, and I think more than many Philip K. Dick movies, on a Philip K. Dick story, we can remember it for you wholesale. This also continues our Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle theme, and I think it also continues our great corporate villain theme with Ronnie Cox stepping up as the uh, leader of evil corporate Mars. We have a you know, story of a guy who is a construction worker in Southern California. He's married to Cheryl Stone. His life is seemingly idyllic, but he has dreams that he leads a revolution on Mars. And when he goes to a, some sort of Philip K. Dickian mess with your head science place, it is revealed to him that he is actually a revolutionary leading a revolution on Mars. And he has to get to Mars and head up the revolution at which point there are several more revelations, each more Philip K. Dickian than the last. And uh, it is a nonstop thrill ride at no point. Very intentionally, I think, does Verhoeven slow down to let you figure out what's going on, which is wise. It's not that the movie would fall apart. It's that you would lose the fun of having been gobsmacked by the next thing that happens in the movie. It, it's one of the most Dickian dick adaptations while still having at its core a, you know, an Arnold Schwarzenegger run and gun action film. And it's uh, politically aware without hitting you over the head with it. It's uh, just a really very successful marriage of uh, sort of its three talents, Schwarzenegger, Verhoeven, and Dick. And it's, uh, you know, not a lot can be said 
against it, except that it is maybe a little bit muddled. But again, that's the Philip K. Dick DNA, and you wouldn't want to not have that. Right. So uh, rather than just repeat everything you just said, I'll just throw in it. It's uh, got some great sort of last gasp practical makeup effects and mm-hmm. prosthetics that really work well. And that, as you suggest, it is a great uh, melding of the action movie with the Philip uh, Dick mind games. And again, it's its satirical edge that makes all of it work. And we might, uh, somebody uh, will have to track down when the reversal of the blonde woman and the brunette woman being good and evil flipped. Mm. But we can tell this is the point where blondes are evil now because it's uh, Sharon Stone who turns out to be the the femme fatale and Rachel Tikatin, who is the sympathetic character. But I think this is sort of the pinnacle of, of Verhoeven's dalliance with uh, science fiction and well worth seeing. We are now sort of entering not just the blockbuster uh, 90s, but also the independent film 90s, where art house cinema is really flourishing. The financing is in place for it. An audience in North America is available to watch subtitled films. And into that 90s fusion of uh, indie cinema and art house and foreign film come uh, Jean-Pierre Genouille and Marc Caro with their film Delicatessen, which is an interesting example uh, I following on Brazil a bit. In fact, they roped Terry Gilliam in to put his name on it in North America for uh, promotional purposes. This is a retro near-future dystopia in which something terrible has happened to Paris. Uh, visually, it has pushed Paris back somehow into the dismal 1940s of the occupation, but it isn't an occupation that's the political problem, but it's an overall societal collapse. There's been an economic collapse, and uh, this sets the stage for an apartment building full of lovable misfits, except there's one non-lovable misfit and he's the butcher and uh there's a bit of a sweeney todd situation happening uh, but fortunately our hero played by uh, dominic pignon who's a, a fixture of uh, jenea caro's films manages to hook up with the underground literally the underground members of the troglodytes uh, liberation movement and uh so there's uh it's it's this film is about its vibe and its rhythms its most famous sequences are about sort of echoing sounds and how they're resulting from different activities in all the different apartments. It sort of creates a, almost sort of a John Ford-like community in this apartment building. And it's a bizarre visual treat that especially in, in those uh, days before Wes Anderson was uh, omnipresent, was just a real shock at uh, how production design could, you know, totally create an alternate world within a film. Yeah, I mean, I, I can only say to reinforce that, that I saw this movie on cable probably uh, in the, you know, early 90s, and I remember only the visuals. <laughs> I, I couldn't even tell you, you know, the, the, the plot, the bad guys, anything. All yeah, I remember... It doesn't help that the trailer doesn't convey the plot at all. Right, there. is these sort of... Well, maybe it helps, but it sort of is these, these flashes of imagery. So... I can't really argue this is an essential, but I can't argue the, the visuals are, are very much what you're watching the movie for and everything else is an amuse-bouche, perhaps. Well, I think you've mentioned amuse-bouche, so I think it's, I'm kind of a little hungry, so I'm going to head on out of the theater uh, for this week, but I'm sure there are yet more cinema essentials uh, that'll be part of our uh, episode next week.
in Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X in Delta Green, the conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green source book with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlatha Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated used to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, they're uh, looking sort of at the, at the turn of a millennium, not the most recent one, and they're looking at the 980s in particular. And there's a period, about a 25-year pause, where if you're in uh, Hampshire or the Isle of Thanet or in Kent, you've gone for a big chunk of time, an entire generation, without being raided by Vikings. And at that point, you're probably thinking, hey, maybe this is all over. And then suddenly there's a big old wave of Viking attacks. And what Time Incorporated Ken wants you to look into is whether this period of peace can be extended because Time Incorporated is all about peace. And if so, how long and what positive effect would it have on the timeline? Well, this is one of those cases, Robin, that I'm afraid the solution is I don't say an overcorrection because it will solve the problem, but it might be a little more than what Time Incorporated wanted if all they want is Viking-free 11th century. But let's start, as we always do, by describing the case. In 980, bands of Danish Vikings, possibly pagans, unhappy with their new Christian king, Harold Bluetooth, who was saying get with Jesus or get gone. And they said, we'll get gone. And they attack, as you say, the island of Thanet in Kent. They sack Southampton in Hampshire. They go to Cheshire in Wales. So that means there's probably two fleets. And then they come back again in 981. They attack Devon and Cornwall. They attack Dorset in 982. Takes them a little bit to get more boats. But as the word spreads that England is soft pickings, there is a raid on Devon that is driven off by the local Thanes. And then in 991, a great fleet led by Olaf Tryggvason, the future king of Norway, but not yet a Christian, lands at Essex and fights the Battle of Malden against the local Earl of Essex, who dies in the battle, as does everyone else with him, because he's grossly outnumbered. They get a really great poem out of it. And then the Danish fleet just goes and raids the whole south coast of England. And Ethelred, King Ethelred the Unready, pays the Danegeld, pays money to bribe them to go away, and that's 7,000 pounds of silver. So literally two tons and change 
of silver, or three right. tons and change of silver. So, so the basic imbalance here behind this dynamic, which I'm sure is beyond your purview uh, at Time Incorporated, is that in England, there is a lot of money, mm-hmm. but not a lot of warriors. And in the uh, Scandinavian countries, there is not a lot of money and there are a lot of warriors. So that just as Willie Sutton in the 1930s explained why he robbed banks, that's where the money is. Well, this whole conveniently vulnerable coast of England is where the money is because at this time it's a center of the church. The church is an engine of the economy and that results in wealth and uh, therefore attacks from uh, raiders. Right. The Great Fleet uh, sticks around despite the uh, Dane gelding, raids Northumbria and Lindsay in 993, and then in 994, another Danish Norse fleet, possibly again the same one, raids London. They're stopped at London Bridge, but more Dane geld is also what stops them, 14,000 pounds of silver and gold this time. Ethelred then hires them as mercenaries and gives them the Isle of Wight, which seems like a terrible idea in every respect, because now they have a base conveniently close to the south coast of England. So guess what happens in 997? Another big fleet shows up and they raid the whole south coast of England and Wales from their base in the Isle of Wight. They get finally paid off in 1002 with Mordangeld, 17,000 pounds. And Ethelred, beginning to sort of look askance at uh, the situation, gets himself an insurance marriage by marrying Emma, the daughter of the Duke of Normandy, and thinks, well, now I'm cousin to the Vikings. They can't kill me. And then also, because he's Ethelred, instigates the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, in which he says everyone in England should just kill any Dane they're standing next to on St. Bryce's Day. That'll clear things up with the Danes. Guess what? That doesn't affect the Isle of Wight, where all the ships are, nor does it affect the whole northern part of the country, which the Danes basically own. So Sven Forkbeard, the king of Denmark, who succeeded the new Christian king, Harold Bluetooth, and succeeded in the sense of killed him and took over. So Harold's son, Sven, invades England and eventually conquers it in 1014. And that is what happens when you pay Danegeld, Robin, and you say that it is a natural flow as akin to gravity. Poor, angry Danes, um, rich, defenseless Englishmen. Well, the reason they're defenseless is they're ruled by Ethelred the Unready. <laughs> it's right there in the name. <laughs> it's right there in his name. Yeah, because he, he had all that silver. He could have used it to, you know, increase the size of his military, right? Exactly. Fit out ships, for example. But Ethelred, or possibly his mom, because he was 12, has his brother Edward the Martyr murdered to become king. So he begins with a land that is already unhappy with Ethelred and not willing to sort of stand up and fight for him. And he's only 12. So the Danes don't just see money there. They see weakness. And that's what leads them to pour down onto onto England and raid the heck out of it. So I suspect, Ken, that this is the fulcrum of your chrono shenanigans. Actually, the fulcrum is just a little bit before that, because you know that 25-year pause in Viking raids? You know why that was? That was because of the reign of King Edgar, who is called King Edgar the Peaceful. And he was called King Edgar the Peaceful in exactly the same sense that Wyatt Earp called his gun the Peacemaker. (laughs) (laughs) King Edgar was not having it. King Edgar was, first he was not king. He was the brother of the king. His brother Edmund, I think, was king. Everyone was like, well, Edmund's the legitimate king, but Edgar is badass. So we're going to make him sub-king of 
Mercia, which is the part of England that touches the Danish territory. And King Edgar, just when he was sub-king of Mercia, just sort of walked up to Danish territory and said, you using that? I see you're not using that, and moves angles in. So by the time he becomes full king, he has basically cowed all the Danes in upper, what's called the Dane law before Edgar got a hold of it, and was then called that Danish part of my kingdom by King Edgar. And King Edgar scared everybody. No one wanted to mess with King Edgar. And he had the whole system of, of, of fighters and burgs, fortified burgs that was set down by Alfred the Great. He expanded it into the north. He was great, but he dies, Robin, at age 31 in 975. And this is what sets off his two sons having uh, Edward and Ethelred having their situation. I looked and I looked and I looked and nobody seems to know what he died of in age 31, but I'll bet you can cure it with time medicine. So that's my twist is to go back and give King Edgar the peacemaker another 30 years of reigning. And guess what the Vikings aren't going to do is try it with him because King Ethelred amongst his other multitudinous flaws doesn't lead his soldiers into battle. He sits back at Winchester and says, someone should fight the Danes, I guess. And that is also very uninspiring over and above the fact that he murdered King Edward the martyr, like a murderer. And you'll note Robin that extending Edgar's reign and then at least changing, if not completely removing Ethelred from the timeline means that nobody marries the daughter of the Duke of Normandy, which means William the Conqueror doesn't even have the thin claim that he had of why he invades England. So a long reign for King Edgar, who, by the way, was great. He reformed the currency. He reformed the monasteries. He was a terrific king. And people are like, why is there no history written about him? Because everything was great. <laughs> and so um, uh, if you extend the reign of King Edgar, you probably basically sustain Anglo-Saxon England. And the Kingdom of England maybe has a slightly more feudal base. It becomes a little more like France because Edgar does, you know, have the Danes as a separate kingdom under him or earldom under him. But the bottom line is that you have Anglo-Saxon England continue well past 1066. And that is a big old change in the timeline. So when they say, can you make there be fewer Vikings? I can say, I can give you Anglo-Saxon England down to the modern era. And Time Incorporated might say, that's a big old change. And we don't get Shakespeare that way. So, hmm. So I leave this one. This is one where I've prepared the report. It goes to the bosses. We see what happens. Well, from the game component of view, though, the history that you haven't yet changed has <laughs> lots of stuff going on in it. It does. Lots of chaos and barbarian type activity. And do we need even further explain how this could be an exciting time for uh, player characters to be running around? Well, one of the things that you can do is if you wanted to have a alternate Middle Ages in which these sort of rough, wonderful beauty of the Anglo-Saxons exists in contrast to continental mores instead of as an extension of them. I feel like this is a great jumping off point if you want a surviving Anglo-Saxon England in your sort of fantasy Europe or, or some sort of mid more conventionally medieval fantasy. You can, you know, Beowulf country is just right up the road still. It's not been uh, subsumed under the, the, the Norman conquest. And I feel like if you're looking for variety in your medieval times, maybe an Anglo-Saxon England is, is a good one, and that will be a perfectly good linchpin on which to hang it, as opposed to reversing 1066, which leaves you with Harold Godwinson in charge 
until the next time, because Ethelred basically hollowed out and destroyed the Anglo-Saxon monarchy, as even the Anglo-Saxons at the time began to note in their diaries. Well, I think that leaves uh, people with plenty of uh, grist, whether they stuck with this history or that one. And we can pronounce uh, yet another podcast successfully concluded. We'll be back with uh, yet another, yet another podcast a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Aspagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast's priories unrated by joining such badass monarchs as... Jane McDowell. Robert Wolf, Adam Balderstone. Ben Brigoff. And Chris Hooning. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>